so so much of how we relate to and interact um, with the people that we serve depends on how we see that individual. And as an example, uh, if you looked at the DSM, paranoid personality disorder in the DSM uh, is characterized by pervasive distrust and suspiciousness of others, such that their motives are interpreted as malevolent, beginning by early adulthood and present in a variety of contexts. Now, there are some seven uh, criteria. And so one of the things that you have to initially is you have to, you have to meet uh, four of these. And the symptoms are things like the person with parental personality disorder will believe others are using them, lying to them, or harming them without apparent evidence. Uh, they have doubts about the loyalty or trustworthiness of others. They will not confide in others due to the belief that their confidence will be betrayed. They'll interpret ambiguous or benign remarks as hurtful or threatening. They'll hold grudges. And in the absence of objective evidence, they'll believe that their reputation or character are being assailed by others and will retaliate in some manner. They'll be jealous and suspicious without cause of intimate partners. Now, I, 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 I show you this because depending on the context and depending on how you hear this, you can make a lot of assumptions about where this person is coming from. And I would argue that as an African-American man, a black man may describe the pressures he's facing by talking about current politics, employment issues, and violence in his community. And the patient may sound like he's coming from a position of anger, even paranoia, but instead he's merely communicating the experience of a black man in the United States. Now go back to these symptoms. Um, how many times, and, and these are conversations that are probably more often than not held in closer circles, but I can tell you that I have always heard through the years from my peers, from, from other African-Americans, both male and female, uh, things like, um, I can't get ahead. Um, I think that, you know, the folks on my job, my supervisor is holding me back. I didn't get that promotion because I'm a person of color. I can't trust anyone on my job because I don't know what they're going to do with the information. Uh, we've heard over and over people um, just in our communities um, on both sides talk about the impact of historical racism, but oftentimes what as black people, what we hear is, well, um, why don't you get over it? Because racism ha or slavery happened a long time ago. And it would seem oftentimes to folks that there is in the, that there's no clear evidence um, that people of color should be upset or angry. But again, it depends on your perception. There are often times when you're told something and you hear something, I may hear something in what you say, and it may not be what you mean at all, but based on my experience and my perception, I may think that there's a racial undertone to that. And I would also argue that even I, on any given day, depending on how you hear me, I could probably hit four criteria. So what happens if the patient is talking about their perception, their, from their perspective, what their life is like and what they're experiencing, but you hear it differently. Also consider that a black man who has grown up in a society where men and boys of color disproportionately have negative outcomes when involved with law enforcement, 
So his vigilance in everyday life might be perceived as a natural consequence of racial profiling by a provider of color, it may be perceived as paranoia related to schizophrenia by a white clinician. And it's all a difference in perception. And there's a lot of power that that clinician holds. Consider also that in 2005, African-Americans were 7.3 times as likely to live in high poverty neighborhoods, limited to no access to mental health services. Consider also that African-Americans today make up about 12 to 13% of the total population, but we comprise 40% of the homeless population. African-American youth comprise about 17% of the total youth in this country, but make up 40% of the youth in the criminal justice system, 45% of children in foster care. And consider that there are on any given day, 400,000 inmates currently behind bars in the United States who suffer from some type of mental illness. And also consider that the leading cause of preventable deaths in jails and prisons is suicide. They consider that half the inmates in the US are black. And again, remember, African-Americans as a whole make up less than 13% of the total population. So one would have to believe that either African-Americans are somehow genetically flawed and therefore predisposed to failure or that the system is somehow flawed and disproportionately channels black people, young and old, into situations that can often predetermine negative outcomes. Consider also the critical issues faced by multicultural communities that can impact suicide awareness, prevention, and intervention where mental health is concerned. There's less access to treatment, they're less likely to receive treatment, often see poor quality of care. There are high levels of stigma, there's a culturally insensitive healthcare system. There's often implicit bias, racism, homophobia. There's discrimination that can occur in treatment settings. There are often language barriers, and there are lower rates of health insurance. And all of these, the, all these socioeconomic challenges impact behavioral health outcomes. People who are impoverished, incarcerated, or living in violent situations are at higher risk of poor mental health outcomes. So tackling implicit bias takes training and forethought. That means a clinician has got to be aware of their own biases. You have to see what is living inside of you. And that means not just on an individual basis, but where we impact systems and service delivery to groups of people, we have to understand our own biases and then try to understand from the perspective of the people that we're trying to serve. To truly see me, you have to see me through my lens. And to truly hear me, you have to hear what I hear. Now, one of the ways that I often um, deal with things when I'm trying to make sense of the world um, is I like to write, and I oftentimes write my thoughts down. And I wanna share something with you that I wrote. And I don't share this to make a political statement, but I share this because I think it highlights the difference in perspectives and perceptions. But before I do that, I did want to talk to you about what can we do? We can train a more diverse workforce of psychiatrists, psychologists, and social workers. And I know that that sounds daunting, and there are short-term and long-term goals that we need to set to get to that. But one of the things that I always um, fall back on is the fact that 
if you looked at the University of Clemson or Alabama today, they can tell you today who's in the eighth grade that they're watching. It's going to play football for them in four years. We have to become able to do things like that in healthcare and in behavioral healthcare. We need to be able to go into communities and find young people who have the potential to be tomorrow's clinicians, to be tomorrow's psychiatrists and addiction specialists and, and, and psychologists and physicians and social workers and nurture them and make sure that we build a diverse workforce. We have to seek out and utilize individuals with lived experience as a resource. When there are a lack of psychiatrists and psychologists of color, one of the fastest ways that we can create a more diverse workforce is to utilize an underutilized certified peer support specialist workforce. We have some 4,500 trained peers in the state and only about 1,500 of them are employed. So that's a faster way to get to some diversity and then invest in innovative programs. Uh, like for example, the first episode psychosis program, which has a, 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 a family oriented approach where you bring in more of the folks that impact that person socially and you talk with and incorporate the family and you have a focus on supported employment and supported education, and there's a peer component to it. So we need to look at more programs like that. We also need to re recognize the roles of socioeconomics and intergenerational racism and trauma. And take services where people live, where they are. We need more resources in the communities where people live. And we need to meet the needs upstream because when people go into crisis, we have already missed an opportunity to intervene. And we are a system that is constantly in crisis mode. And then we need to coordinate care. I have worked for three different LMEMCOs. I've worked for three different DSS agencies in my career, and I've worked for two hospital systems. And I can tell you that depending on which organization I was working for, the goals were different. It didn't feel, it, it, it didn't seem like it should be different, but there's a difference when you're a hospital ED and you have a person in your ED who does, does not meet the criteria to go inpatient. So you want them to get out of your ED. And if it's a child, you call DSS and you say, I've got a child here. The parent has abandoned them. They won't pick them up. They're saying they can't take them back home. They can't handle them. They can't handle their addiction. They can't handle their, uh, their behavior. And DSS says, well, uh, this is not a DSS issue. This is a MCO issue because this is a treatment issue. Well, the MCO says, no, this is not a treatment issue. This is a safety issue. So it's a DSS issue. And so we, and, and the hospital's in the middle saying, someone needs to take ownership of this. And DSS won't take custody. The hospital says the child is abandoned. But we, everyone has competing goals rather than us figuring out how to work the best interest of the individual that we're trying to serve. And then we need to increase community access to resources. We don't need more beds. More beds alone are not the answer. We don't necessarily just need more inpatient facilities, but we need more resources in the communities where people live. We need to increase access to mental health and behavioral health supports in home, uh, in home support to families and services and children and wrap services around the family. Ex ex expand school-based mental health um, care to more schools and build on community partnerships because we need the credibility that can come from partnering with others who already are established in communities. And then we need the resources that come with those partnerships. And then not only listen to historically marginalized communities, but to hear historically marginalized communities.
And this is what I want to share with you. And again, this is not for a political statement, but this is to just highlight the difference in how we hear. So when you listen to what's in the ground, buried in the soil of America, do you hear what I hear? Do you hear the rattle of chains as my forefathers were huddled together as cattle, sold into bondage? Or do you only hear the stories of slave owners who built America with the sweat of their brow? Do you hear the spatter of bloodshed and the crack of the whip as it pierced the back of my great-great-grandfather toiling in the cotton field? Do you only hear the clatter of Eli Whitney's cotton gin as it spun out fine linens and adorned generals and businessmen? Do you hear the wails of African mothers as their babies were stripped from their arms and sold to the highest bidder? Or do you only hear the stories of the daughters of the Confederacy who showed their grit they supported their men in battle. Do you hear the sound of the gavel as black fathers were taken from their families and sold on the auction blocks? Or do you only hear the stories of today's absent black fathers? Do you hear the cries for freedom from the bondage of slavery? Or do you only hear the rebel yell, the battle hymn, the oppressors whom monuments were erected? Do you hear the last gasp for breath as a black man was lynched in the Jim Crow South for no other reason than being black? Or do you only hear the strength and metal of the poor white farmers who survived the Great Depression? Do you hear the screams of the 300 black citizens murdered in Wilmington, North Carolina massacre of 1898? Their businesses burned to the ground by a mob of angry white men simply because they dared to prosper. Or do you only hear angry black protesters in 2020? Do you hear the spirituals ringing out as freedom marchers locked arm in arm saying, we shall overcome, or being set upon by dogs and fire hoses? Or do you only hear of how great the 60s were, prompting you to long for days gone by and seek to make America great again? Do you hear the battle cries, or do you hear the, the cries for justice, for equality, freedom as I take a knee? Or do you only hear the Star Spangled Banner and avert your eyes? Do you hear the voice of a 14-year-old Emmett Till, lynched in Mississippi in 1955, speaking to a white woman? Or do you only hear the tales of black male predators? Do you hear Eric Garner stifled, I can't breathe? Or do you only hear the author repeated, you should comply? Do you hear the screams of a startled and frightened Armand Arbery who, while out jogging in Georgia, was murdered for something someone thought he might have done? You only hear their pleas of innocence and that they have to protect their property. Do you hear the cries of Breonna Taylor asking why she was shot eight times in her home? The law enforcement officers who were at the wrong residence, or do you only hear how we shouldn't police the police when Black lives are lost. You hear George Floyd crying out to his mother, to all Black mothers, as he lay dying on the concrete with an officer's knee on his neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds. So do you only hear the call for law and order against the base elements of society? Listen, do you hear what I hear as I place my ear to the ground. Do you hear the spilled blood crying from the depths of the soil? Do you hear it? 
Can you hear my pain? Can you hear my anguish? Can you hear me? Because I hear you. And sometimes the silence is deafening. If you can't hear me, you can't help me. Isn't that what we are all here for? And remember, perception is everything.